Welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. My name is Jody Lima, and on this twice-monthly podcast, posted on the first and third Monday of each month, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Ben Zhu. He's author and illustrator of the recent picture book, Dessert Island, as well as founder of the Gallery Nucleus in California. And we're going to be talking about all of that, as well as his favorite children's book, uh, which is Do Is Talk, uh, a picture book written and illustrated by Carson Ellis. Now, after the interview with Ben, I would like you to stick around for something a little bit different. As I've uh, mentioned before, my debut middle grade novel, Hushabai, is coming out on August 24th this year. And starting with this podcast and for the next two podcasts after that, I'm going to be reading the first six chapters of the novel. Today, on this podcast, I'm starting with chapters one and two. So, if you just want to listen to my interview with Ben, no problem. But if you want to hear the start of a story that I hope you will enjoy, or at least find a little creepy, please keep listening. My guest today is Ben Zhu, author and illustrator and founder of Gallery Nucleus in California. His first picture book, which was released this year, is called Dessert Island. You can find more information about Ben at www.benzudraws.com. More information about Gallery Nucleus at www.gallerynucleus.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Ben. Thank you for having me. As I mentioned, uh, Dessert Island, which is your, your first picture book uh, that you've done, is, has come out. You talk a little bit of what this book is about. The book is about a, uh, two animals. One is a monkey and one is a fox. And it's about sort of their, their parallel fates. Um, one starts off on a desert island uh, while the other starts off on a desert island and just sort of follows their, uh, their journey, so to speak, and sort of uh, how they deal with their situations and how their situations evolve over the course of, uh, the course of time. And I did have the pleasure of reading this, and I really did enjoy it. And I'm just curious, Des Desert Island is such a great title, and it's just it's one of those titles where you think, I'm just, I, nobody thought of that before. And, and, uh, <laughs> and so is it, I'm just wondering, did this, was it the story or the title that kind of came to you first? The title came to me first. Mm -hmm. And I was, yeah, exactly my thought. I was like, how come there's no Desert Island books? And, you know, I, through further... Uh, through further research, I did find eventually like Desert Island in being used as, I think there was either like novels, there might have been a novel called Desert Island, but there weren't really any picture books called Desert Island. And my idea of what I was going to do with the title was also, I felt unique enough that it, uh, yeah, it stuck with me to where I felt, okay, this is, this is definitely Whatever, whatever the story is going to be, it's going to also revolve around this title. The title has be, sort of helped me cement my premise in a way. So it yeah. really was the title came first, and then what am I going to do with this to make it uh, an interesting story? Definitely, yeah. Once I got the title, I, all the visuals just sort of started flooding into my mind, and of you know, there's when you hear Desert Island, it could be it could be so many different things. So that helped me in all the rewrites later on as well. 
Now, um, I'm curious because I've, ha- I've had people uh, on who have just written like the text of picture books and then submitted to illustrators. And I have people who've, uh, you know, written and illustrated, um, did both of those things. And I'm always curious about uh, the process, especially for someone who does the writing and the illustrating as well. And and how does, for you personally, how does that work? Do you figure out the text first and the pictures or the pictures, or is it sort of a back and forth kind of thing? Or what what exactly is your process in, in creating all of that for your book? No, that's a good question. Um, I've, I sort of discovered my process as I went because this is sort of my debut book. I began the journey sort of by making just a book dummy in Photoshop. So my tools essentially were sort of, you know, I, I would use anything from post-its to just uh, stapled paper, to, stapled to make it look like a book. But primarily it was doing a lot of uh, comps in Photoshop and then printing those out and kind of making a book dummy out of that. And so I made a, my first experiment was, to, was, was making a book dummy a staple bound book dummy. And that's what I ended up using to sort of get my first feedback about the book. But as it, as the book progressed, uh, my process became more of writing first. And I use, um, I actually use uh, Google spreadsheets to, to write. I don't, I, I'm not sure if, if a lot of other people do, <laughs> but I, I've found that ultimately that's where I, that's where the writing happens i mean i'll use if i get an idea i'll you you know i'll jot it down on my phone or my email i have tons of email drafts with just random ideas but ultimately it goes into a google spreadsheet where i have you know on the left side is the page numbers and one row i'll have the images and then on the other row i'll have the text so yeah as i went on it was it was really my uh my agent that suggested that I just do the writing and just focus on the writing first. And then once she, or, you know, once I got good enough feedback on it, then I kind of toyed around with the, uh, the illustrations, but it was a pretty messy process to be honest, because there was times where in order to get to the writing or in order for the writing and the page, the writing to fit within the page, uh, the page limitations, I had to really sort of sit down and put it on, you know, draw on post-its. Drawing in a lot of ways because I'm I'm a sort of an artist first. Um, drawing it out in Photoshop or on post-its helps me sort of see the whole story a little bit better. Um, so it was a bit of like a going back and forth between just text and then image and text. And sometimes images would, I would just sketch in my sketchbook and that could that would also help me come up with you know, un- unlock my mind of like, okay, maybe this isn't working, but maybe maybe this other thing could work. So I guess to answer your question is, ultimately, my process be- became refined to writing first, using Google Spreadsheet, and then going into Photoshop, uh, sketching out the, the picture book in just black and white, you know, really rough, and uh, having basically one giant image file where it was like... Um, you know, you would see the each spread, uh, one on top of the other. So I can see the whole book all at once. I can just zoom in and zoom out of Photoshop. And w- what I would do is submit that as a PDF to my agent or editor. 
Well, it's interesting hearing that that process that is, and, and how complicated it is. What I've often said on this podcast is I don't think people often appreciate enough just how um, difficult it is to actually put together a picture book. Um, it seems like a very simple thing. You have pictures and very few words, and it seems like the easiest thing in the world, and it's not. <laughs> it's, oh, it's, it is so difficult. <laughs> I, it's given me, I mean, I already appreciated it, and that's sort of what drove me to picture books, like, because through Gallery Nucleus, we've exhibited so many amazing picture book artists, as well as artists, artists, uh, like like illustrator slash writers, you know, I already knew, and even even going through art school because I'm original, you know, I was trained class, as an artist. I had already known that right, uh, creating a, a picture book was difficult, but once you actually do it, it's it's a whole other thing. <laughs> I've tried it myself. I've have never succeeded, but I do appreciate how difficult it is. Uh, can you share part of the book for us? Yeah, sure. So the parallels. To show the parallels between the two, I essentially started the book with on the left side is always the monkey and on the right side is always the fox. So on the left side, when you open the book, the story begins with monkey standing on top of a cake with a sort of neutral, slightly smiling expression. And he say, and the text says, I am stuck on a desert island. It is made of chocolate, frosting and berries. And on the right side of the page of the spread, you see... Uh, vignette is the fox on a a sort of a mound essentially it's a desert island and he's at his time is different he's at night whereas the monkey is um sort of like sunrise anyway the fox is text that says i am stuck on a desert island it is made of dirt and rocks so we flip the page and now we see monkey is has started eating his cake island and on the cake island, sort of bejeweled around the top of the cake, where the frosting is, near the monkey is uh, are these berries. They're sort of they're sort of berry clusters. So each cluster has about five or six berries within it. And um, I'll go on to tell you the importance of that later. But um, so the monkey is essentially eating his island, and he says, "I am very lucky." And we see fox who is, you know, lifting a stone, looking around the island. Basically, it's pretty barren. <laughs> but aside from a little bit of grass and uh, a little bit of plant life. And he says, I am very hungry. And he's looking a little sad. So we flip the page again on the left, monkey. So, so more of the island has been eaten off now. And monkey is, he's, you know, his face is messy by from... Yet, you know, he's got, he doesn't have a napkin, so he's get, get really getting in there. And um, as he's eating, a berry has, a cluster of berries has fallen off of the cake. Monkey said, oh, no, well, I didn't really need that anyway. And then on the right side, uh, you see Fox, who is still on the desert island. He sees this cluster of berries uh, drifting onto his island. And then he says... Oh boy, I really needed this. And they're still in two different time zones. And they're both in their individual vignettes. So we flip the page again. And now, dark, it's getting towards, uh, I want to say, getting towards sunset for the monkey. And more of the cake has been eaten off. And almost all the berries have been, uh, clusters of berries have been eaten off, with the exception of a few. And uh, storm clouds are starting to form behind him. 
and the monkey is uh, holding his belly sort of in pain because he's been he's eaten too much and he says I can't eat one more bite and then we look at a fox who is digging a hole in the desert uh, in the ground with just a hint of a dark cloud behind him um, and it's it's like sort of the afternoon and the fox is saying I just need one more thing and we flip the page and now it is starting to rain there's definitely storm clouds and monkey part of monkey's island has broken off because the sort of structural integrity of the cake is, is breaking apart so monkey is uh, holding his head looking up and saying rain whereas now it's starting also starting to to rain uh, on fox's island but fox is rejoicing with his hands up in the air and smiling saying water so we flip the page again. Now it's continuing to rain. Now we see it's sort of like a far shot. Uh, monkey is very small in the center of his vignette. And his, his island, his cake island, has shrunk even more. Uh, with even more pieces of the cake now breaking apart and drifting away. So it's no longer an island. He's starting to drift. And he says, I think my island got smaller. And on the right side, we see Fox, a close-up of Fox, looking at his little sprout that has developed uh, on this little dirt mound where he was digging. And he says, I think my plant got taller. And then we cut, uh, flip the page again. We see Monkey, and he's just isolated on this little tiny mound of a cake island with still a little one cluster of berries on it. And he's basically holding himself shivering in this foggy, rainy, turbulent waters. And he says, I am very worried. And we see Fox uh, on his island with his you know, sprout growing, having uh, progressed and growing even more. And Fox is very, very happy. And he says, I am very excited. And so from there, I'm just going <laughs> to, I'm just going to leave it there. Oh, yeah. You want the, the reader to be able to, well, you want them to pick up the book to find out how it yeah. turns out. Well, yeah, <laughs> it, it is kind of neat. It's a like I said, it, it's, a, it's this dual narrative that eventually, and I, I don't want to say anything more about it. I think people should read it for themselves. That becomes a single one, and, and like I said, they can pick up the book and find out exactly how it turns out, which I definitely recommend uh, people do. We talked a little. I mentioned it before, and you mentioned it as well uh, that you're a founder of the uh, Gallery Nucleus in California. Uh, can you talk a little bit uh, what what that is and how it came about? Yeah, Gallery Nucleus is essentially, it's primarily an art gallery with a boutique sort of art-related shop in the front. So we started out, we started out that way, and the art gallery is sort of the main driver uh, of, the, of the business. It's an art gallery that focuses on animation, illustration, and entertainment art. So pretty much everything that I I, I studied and I and that I loved, I studied animation uh, since high school, and in college I studied illustration, and once I graduated I worked in video games for a little bit, and my friends were working in you know animation and film, as um, as uh, you know anything from 3D modelers, concept artists, storyboard artists, things like that. So. For me, I, I was 
I've always been a, a nerd of this stuff. <laughs> I've always wondered why isn't there art galleries or museums to sh that showcase the, the concept art from like your, your favorite uh, animated film or, you know, or your favorite picture book or your, yeah, or your favorite video game, things like that. So that's sort of the genesis of, of uh, how the gallery started. And it started in 2004 when I, when I was sort of looking for a career change. I was, I was working in video games at the time, but I decided to, I was going to try animation. But before that, I ended up uh, just sort of on a whim almost decided to try this as a business just because I, I felt there was a need for it. And because I wanted to showcase a lot of the friends and amazing artists that I knew. And um, yeah, I cut to, what is it, like 16 years now? I just, you just, uh, you don't, you know, I just haven't stopped doing it, I guess. Do you think there's sometimes um, a, a, a stigma attached to uh, art like that? Almost like, uh, I think, of children's books. Um, they're not uh, treated as so-called serious uh, yeah. work um and yeah. so they're they're not given the same regard as perhaps they should yeah that is very much our our mo you know it's just like we want to one of the things about our gallery because it's like a we're literally on a main street i feel a duty almost to educate a lot of the general public as to what art can be um or as to what they can enjoy because a lot of people think they have to go to like a contemporary art museum to enjoy art or you know the louvre or something you know what i mean whereas we're saying no this is this is art this is amazing stuff and the more you dive into it you're like well of course like the the work of eric carl or the work of maurice sindak or you know there's so many amazing artists that have influenced our culture and and you know like, like through that our minds you know just sort of like our culture is uh, that, that because it's influenced it so much, it it warrants being in a museum or seen in that sort of environment. Yeah, and I, I feel the same way about and the reason I do the podcast is uh, I'm trying to get people to take children's books more seriously. I mean, they're definitely for children and should be enjoyed. But, you know, a good children's book is just a good book. Uh, I think yeah. just like you say, uh, a piece of art, wherever it comes from, whether it's for animation or comic, it's still good art is good art. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, children's books, I mean, it's, like you said, it's just a good book with different limitations. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, the the book you picked as one of your own particular favorite uh, books for kids is a book called Do Is Tack uh, by Carson Ellis. And I've, I'm like... I'm not really sure if I'm saying that right, but <laughs> I think that's right. And this was yeah, published. Right. Yeah, and this was published in 2016. And uh, for readers who haven't had a chance to read this uh, book yet, can you talk a little bit about what this book is about? Yeah. So Dewey's talk is essentially how do I describe this book? It follows its multiple spreads. From almost the like from the very first page to the last page, it's just multi, uh, one spread, one two-page spread after another, and it follows the sort of events that have uh, the events of these bugs. It's sort of their life within within a season, but when you start off, you're just seeing events unfold. So it starts off with like two bugs recognizing a little 
a little uh, sprout that has sprouted from the ground. And then one of them is saying, Dewey's tuck. And then the other one's saying, Manazut. And right away you're like, okay, is this a language that I haven't studied? But you quickly realize that this is a made up language. And within each spread, there's a lot of different elements. It's always the same perspective. So it's almost like a stage play in that respect, where you're just seeing the same elements on each spread, but with slight changes. So for example, um, you know, on the previous page, you know, maybe there was no blades of grass, but on this, on this next page, the grass has grown or, you know, leaves have fallen, things like that. And um, different characters are introduced throughout each page as well. But it all takes place within this sort of one setting. And uh, yeah, more and more characters are introduced and the sprout becomes bigger and bigger until... Um, until more characters are introduced <laughs> and it becomes a till essentially it becomes a flower and where it goes from there I won't I won't say but the format of the book is is essentially just this one scene and what the characters do when they when they uh, see the, the the sort of flower bloom and whatever conflicts play out are sort of all related to this to this flower and various aspects of the scene and when did you first come across this book I came across this book, uh, my daughter, I was reading it to her when she was two or three, so about three or four years ago, yeah, came across it three or four years ago. I first just borrowed it from a library, and then also, I borrowed, but I borrowed it because I was talking to artist John Clausen, who is a fan of and friends with Carson Ellis, and he was telling me about... Carson Ellis's work and for me I was like well if you're a fan of it and I'm a fan of your work <laughs> it must be worth looking at so next time at the library I checked it out and I, I immediately loved it and uh, my daughter also loved it and so she had us you know, she had me reading it frequently and I knew that was a good sign you know it had her approval and uh, the more I read it to her the more I started to really uh, like find the nuances and really sort of enjoy it more but when you asked me yeah i was it was very difficult to pick a book because <laughs> there's so many good children's books but this one i think i picked this one because of i was still writing my book at the time and i think this one sort of helped me realize like oh you know i had seen a lot of different children's books and most i hadn't seen i've seen formats similar to this but i hadn't seen it exactly like this and so I really loved what this was doing with the children's book medium. It felt very uh, sort of like a classical children's book format, you know, with, you know, just spread after spread. But at the same time, there was this refreshing quality about it. Um, so I, it felt like a classic. Uh, when I was, um, I, I read the book, but I was uh, looking at what other people said about the book. Sometimes I saw people describing this invented language as gibberish, uh, but I don't think that's the right word uh, because as you're reading it, the words may not be familiar, but there is, it's just, it's not nonsense. That is, you can find meaning in the words, even if they're not immediately recognizable. It, it, in other words, after a while, things make sense. Exactly, exactly. And I think that was what I learned to appreciate about it because for kids who don't have a second language, 
or who aren't learning a second language, this sort of activates that part of their mind, you know, because through their gestures, through their body language, you're kind of able to guess, and through the situation, you're kind of able to guess like what they could be saying. And I mean, there's definitely intention with these, this made up language. It's definitely not gibberish. Um, it could easily be some sort of like Latin or, you know what I mean? Um, it may as well be Latin is what I'm trying to say. It's like it, it, it has its own sort of roots and it kind of reminds me of German a little bit, you know? Um, but what I loved about it ultimately is that it was teaching my daughter communication in a way that wasn't just the words. It was saying, look, you can communicate with, with, uh, yeah, with your body language. You can communicate with tone. When I read it, if I read it a certain way, it, it, the book would feel different. And that's, that's the other beauty of it is that not just with the words, but with a lot of the uh, imagery in the, in the book. I liked how she opened it, kept it open for interpretation. So it really makes the kids sort of work their brain a little more. I was thinking like um, a particular phrase, one of my favorites in the book of flowers described is unscrividelli gladden boot. Yeah. I was thinking the word scrividelli. I can't tell you exactly what it means, but I know there, if I, there will be things I run across and scrividelli will be just the right word to describe <laughs> it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. For, for many, uh, for many weeks, me and my daughter would would say that. I was like, oh, that scrivadelli <laughs> when something something good happened. I think you touched that upon this uh, for the structure of this book. I mean, it's a short book with few words, but it, it almost there are almost acts to it. Um, and I think of it like your I think of a, your your own book. You know, it has a structure of these dueling narratives that go into one, and this one too has you know definite sort of scenes and acts, and there is you know like you said a, a real structure. Uh, yeah. to it, you know, in a very short book, which is fascinating. Yeah, I find the structure of children's books really interesting because the structure in some ways can almost dictate the narrative. It's part of the limitation, right? So you can tell a certain type of story better with a certain type of structure. You know, I look at, I'm trying to think who else is some other interesting structure ones, but even like, like rhyme could be a type of structure, you know, but that's, that's one of the things I did appreciate about this book was that like, Oh, I can change the structure more than I realize. You know, it's not just the sort of linear within the linear uh, narrative. You, we can do some pretty interesting things and it may be, I don't know if it was directly influenced by this book, but for me on, on desert Island, it was a big, sort of aha moment when I realized, oh, maybe my structure isn't left page, then right page, left page, then right page, and with vignettes, you know, because I had earlier versions, I had so many earlier versions, where it was, you know, full page spread, and then something happens, and then there's vignettes of things that happen within the story, and then a, a one page spread with a vignette on the right side. So it was a much more traditional uh, contemporary children's book. But it wasn't until I realized, oh, no, this is like a parallel thing that when I had the structure of two vignettes, one on the left, one on the right, page after page after page, that's what sparked the storytelling in a way. Because then I knew it was like, oh, OK, 
if they're two separate vignettes, then at some point, actually, okay, I remember now. It was it was uh, through when I reread uh, Maurice Sendax, Where the Wild Things Are. I had forgotten that he uh, opens up the world and makes it, you know, he'll start with a smaller vignette and bigger and bigger and bigger, and it opens it up to where it's like a full page spread, you know, bleeding to the edges. I love that about it. And I kind of, I thought, okay, well, if these two worlds, if these are two separate worlds, one is the monkey, one is the fox, at some point it would be really satisfying to sort of see them merged and how that happens would be, you know, that that's, this structure lent itself to, to that sort of satisfying moment. So that helped the writing process. Well, it's interesting. It even has a, a a little subplot, a purely visual subplot with the caterpillar and the butterfly playing that sort of go on. It's not really commented on uh, too much, but it's ongoing. And, um, and it actually has that theme of metamorphosis and things changing that kind of ties everything together as well. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, I like, like I said, I, I like that she left some things unrelated to the to the main story to sort of give give kids it's, it builds that world. It gives it a, it makes it a richer world. What is it about the the illustrations themselves that because um, it's so important you, you, uh, to the story, you know, and telling the story. Obviously, the text is important, but the illustrations and sort of how they work together, and just the particular style. And I, I don't even know how to describe the style because I have no, I I don't really have a background in art, so I don't have words to describe uh, yeah. these things. So uh, how how would you? describe it i guess or you know what 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 the what the artist does here i think i would describe her this sort of this work as it reminds me of kind of like old american it, it's i i want to say it's kind of colonial I, I can't put my finger on it either i don't um i don't know the the uh the genre but it feels like a classic the style is, is sort of is sort of like slice of life in a way, but the it's not really like it's kind of flattened, which is interesting. Um, it's it really allows you to sort of look at each element, almost like it's it's almost like paper cut out. You know what I mean? Where there's not even though there's not a ton of line work, it's mostly tone and shapes. She's not uh, like over rendering anything, everything. You know what I mean? There's not like a, you know, like the sunlight is casting a shadow on the leaf and the leaf is casting a shadow. I mean, the, the sunlight is not uh, beaming down on the, on the flower and it's not casting a shadow on the ground. It's very uh, what they call in painting like no tan, where there's, it's, it's, not, um, it's not really stark or harsh darks and lights. So in that respect, it's kind of, uh, I don't know, it, it does make it feel a bit more classical and picture booky. <laughs> That's a terrible description. But uh, it, is, it, just make, it does make it pleasing to look at. You're sort of looking more at the silhouettes as opposed to how the, how the form uh, plays. Does that make sense? 
Oh yes, yes, I think so. That's a, that's a much putting it much better than I could. So, yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, I, I was wondering. One thing I often ask with about picture books is um, uh, when I used to teach, I would uh, use picture books to help teach plot and things like that. Do you think you see a value in using I, I, cause I, using this kind of book? as a, a learning text for older kids as well, maybe a way of teaching story or art or even grammar, I would think. <laughs> yeah, possibly grammar. I think language, I'm sure some some linguists, or I hope some linguists can get something out of this. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure in that, uh, in that regard. But in terms of story, I think it very much has a, has a great, you know, very good, I want to say it's a traditional structure, I'm not exactly sure, but it doesn't. It definitely feels to me like there's a traditional structure where you know, in the beginning, you sort of have the uh, inciting incident. So you start out with, you know, the the two two bugs finding the sprout, and then as time progresses, you know, it it continues to grow, and there's definitely like a beginning, middle, and end, um, and there's definitely what I consider a climax. You know, things are good. This this plant is growing, and as it grows, uh, it attracts more and more things. And you know, it it feels it feels like a, sort of the upward arc of a story. And then something happens, and it's a you know a conflict, and uh, suddenly you get sort of what they call the dark night of the soul, or you know. <laughs> Um, I'm just using script like like movie language because I don't know what the uh, the formal uh, you know what what it is with with uh, novel writing or I forget the terminology, but yeah I mean there's definitely a plot and I think I think with children's books you can write plot a bit more like I, I know I'm not you know I'm not a novelist but I know that a lot of novelists sort of go between plotting out their whole thing uh, as well as just sort of going straight through and seeing what happens. And in a lot of ways, it's very similar to animation where, you know, animators will do keyframes and some animators will just sort of start with one pose and just animate their way through pose by pose. Um, I feel like that uh, children's books are very similar because if you try to write it completely through plot, uh, depending on the structure of your book, it could also be, you could also sort of not have as organic of a of a story. I don't know if I answered your question there. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. I've often thought that any writer of whatever they write for adults or any genre should always try their hand uh, at trying to write a children's book or a picture book, even if they fail, just to have the experience to know. You know, I think that they would learn a whole lot just by having the experience of just giving it a giving it a try. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's so precise. You know, you you only have this many pages. You have to hit these notes by roughly this area. Um, you know, you're like, that's that's part of the reason why I write it in Google Spreadsheets is, okay, I'm at my halfway point. I haven't had my, you know, I haven't had the, I haven't introduced the conflict, or I haven't, uh, you know, or the climax is is uh, has already happened or whatever. It just I can tell right away like I'm gonna need more pages or I've got too many pages or you know. But yeah, writing a writing a children's book, you have to be so so precise, and having to sort of surprise the reader within a children's book is no easy task. Uh, well, Ben, uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me 
uh, both about your own work at uh, Desert. Uh, sorry, Desert. I keep wanting to say Desert <laughs> Island, Desert Island, which I said I enjoyed very much, and also taking the time to talk to me about this uh, terrific book, uh, Do His Tack, as well. So uh, thank you for coming and talking and ex- uh, explaining and t- t- giving me something to think about with Google Spreadsheets as well. <laughs> no problem. Thank you very much for having me. You can find Ben's website at www.benzudraws.com and more information about Gallery Nucleus at www.gallerynucleus.com. Hushabye by Jody Lee Mott, published by Viking Children's Press. Chapter 1. It was deep in the afternoon of the last Tuesday of summer when I kicked away a willow branch lying on the riverbank and found the head. My eyes had been closed. I'd been imagining, for no particular reason, how the September sun would look to the salamanders trolling the murky Susquehanna riverbed. Like margarine on burnt toast, I supposed. Then my foot knocked into the branch, my eyes opened, and another eye stared back at me. Its yellow hair was tangled with twigs and muck and broken glass like some crazy bird's nest. It had a scratched cheek, a chipped-up nose, and a grimy clot of mud in the hole where the left eye should have been. I picked up the head and held it by its ragged neck. The body, I supposed, had long since floated away. Poor little doll, I said. Where'd the rest of you go? I glanced behind me. My sister Antonia was somewhere along the slope of the bank, searching for flat rocks to skip on the water. She was always somewhere close by. I bent down to drop the head back in the hollow space where it must have been hiding for weeks, maybe years for all I knew. I wondered if the rest of her might be hiding somewhere on the small river island that sat a couple hundred feet out from where I stood. The curve of its shore matched the curve of the river bank like a puzzle piece and it was covered in tall birch trees that jostled against each other. I looked at the river. Bars of light shivered across the surface. There hadn't been a single cloud in the sky since the middle of August. Nothing above us but a wide sheet of blue. Looking across the ripples of sunlight on the river's brown face, I wondered what would happen if I tossed the doll's head into the water. I wanted to make the sunlight dancing there smash into a million pieces. Somehow, that seemed like the best possible thing I could do that day. I weighed the doll's head dangling from my hand, its hair twisted in my fingers. Its one good eye watched me, almost like my daddy's eyes, bright emerald green and full of mischief. At least, that's how I remembered them. I bit my lip and swallowed the sour ball of pain rising up my throat. The eye still looked at me, but it didn't seem so bright any more. It was dull and scratched and looked like nothing more than a cheap glass eye stuck in a poor broken doll's head. Lucy? I turned. Antonia stood there with her hands cupped together, full of rocks too fat for anything but sinking with a loud plop. She was smiling and her eyes were wide open, even though she was facing into the sun. I could never understand how she was able to do that without squinting. The sparkly duckling barrette she'd worn since second grade glittered in the sunlight. Gross, Antonia said, but she was still smiling. What's that? Nothing, I said. Just an old doll's head. Come look. Antonia dropped the rocks, letting them thump in the undergrowth, and shuffled towards me. 
I pressed my finger against the doll's cheek. See, I said, only an old broken doll's head. Antonia wrapped her hand around the head and tried to pull it toward her. I jerked it away. Stop that, I said, a little more harshly than I'd intended. There's glass in its hair. You'll cut yourself. I'm going to throw it back where I found it. Nothing but trash, anyway. Antonia pouted. I tried to ignore her, but that pout always rankled me. Even though there was only a year's difference between us, sometimes Antonia acted like such a baby. According to Mom, Antonia just had her own Antonia way of doing things, which meant she needed a little extra help at school and a little more patience from me. I knew it wasn't completely her fault why she acted the way she did, so I tried to be understanding. I didn't always succeed. I shook my head to break up the annoyed feeling. There were still a few more hours of this day to enjoy my freedom. No sense in ruining that with fussing over things I couldn't change. And no sense in keeping some dirty, broken, good-for-nothing doll's head. I stepped toward the river and drew my arm back. A gust of wind shook the gray birch branches across the far bank. As they swayed, I thought I heard something, a faint voice whispering among the sound of rattling dry leaves. Take me home. I swung about and glared at my sister. What did you say? Antonia cocked her head to one side. I didn't say nothing. Must have been the doll. I looked at my sister for a long time, then shook my head. Don't be silly. I picked shards of glass out of the doll's hair. Too many worries about school tomorrow were making me jumpy, making me hear things. I needed to settle myself down. It's sad, though, don't you think? I said. Poor thing left here all alone. Her little body's probably washed all the way to China. My teacher read a book about a glass bunny that got lost, Antonia said. He got drowned in the ocean until some fisherman pulled him out and saved him. Probably shouldn't throw her back in the river. That would be littering. We can put her in the trash when we get back home. Antonia leaned in and squinted at the doll's head. She's not garbage, she said. She needs us. She's lonely. She rested her cheek on my arm. Can't we take her back to the trailer? We can fix her up, and maybe we can find another body for her. I nudged Antonia away. Mom wouldn't like it. She's already threatened to take a shovel to all that junk under your bed. It's not junk, Antonia said. They're my precious treasures. Her precious treasures were a flat soccer ball, a trunkless stuffed elephant named Mr. Lumps, a large bag full of knotted rubber bands, a papier-mâché earth with only five continents, and about a hundred other bits and pieces she'd picked up here and there and shoved under her bed for later. She'd be the most precious treasure of all, Antonia said. She nestled her cheek against my arm again and fluttered her eyelashes. Please, can we keep her? Pretty, please? I had to smile. She knew her eyelash flutter always worked on me. I suppose so, if we don't tell Mom. Antonia's eyes grew wide. You mean lie? The doll's green eye glowed in the afternoon light. The sound of the river filled our ears. A single cloud, thin as a whisper, floated just above the treetops. Not a lie. I trailed my pinky across the doll's stubbed nose. A secret. Our secret. Chapter 2 I'd come down to the river almost every summer day since we moved to Onega Valley, a long, narrow ribbon of town in New York State, just a few miles north of Pennsylvania. 
Antonia had found the dirt footpath hidden under a row of winterberry bushes running behind our trailer. He had to squeeze through them, shuffle sideways down the path to avoid the pricker bushes and stinging nettles that grew between the willows, then slide down a low slope to get to the river bank. Antonia had summer school, so I usually went alone. I'd sit on the bank under a willow tree for hours, watching the dragonflies dance across the water and the island's birch trees nod in the wind. Dark columns poked up here and there between the pale gray trees like giant's fingers. I liked to imagine they were the remains of a long-forgotten meeting house of some secret society. I dreamed about visiting it one day to get a better look at those columns, but the river was too muddy for swimming, and we didn't have a boat. It was strange I'd never noticed the doll's head all those days and weeks I'd spent there. Not until Antonia showed up, anyway. That figured. I mean, I liked her company, but things always got more complicated with her around. Now here we were heading back home, trying to sneak in a busted-up doll's head. After Antonia and I squeezed through the winterberry bushes, we spotted Mom's baby blue junker parked between the trailer and the tall ginkgo tree. We weren't expecting to see her so soon. Then again, we were never too sure when we'd see Mom, day or night. Don't say anything about the head, I reminded Antonia as we approached the trailer. Her eyes grew wide, like I'd said the most unbelievable thing she'd ever heard. I wasn't going to, as if she wasn't the biggest blabbermouth in the world. Well, just remember it, I said, and shoot her on ahead. Antonia slumped her chin on her chest and pouted. I said I wasn't going to. Mom lay on our old beat-up couch with the faded Bird of Paradise slipcover. A damp washcloth covered her eyes, and her smudged sneakers were still tightly tied on her feet. That meant a bad day at work. Hey there, firecrackers, she said in a gravelly voice, not taking off the washcloth. Antonia knelt on the floor near Mom's head. She removed her duckling barrette and leaned back so Mom could stroke her fine, straight hair. It seemed like Antonia got all the best parts from her parents. Mom's glossy chocolate-brown hair and dark eyes, and Daddy's high cheekbones. Well, I ended up with a dirty blonde mess that ate combs, a pug nose, and eyes the color of dishwater. At least neither one of us ended up with our Daddy's temper. We'd already had our fill of it anyway. Not any more, though, or at least not in the twelve months since we'd seen him. I carefully tucked my bag out of sight at the other end of the couch. Mom raised her feet to let me sit down. I pulled off her sneakers and socks and rubbed her feet. Mmm, that feels good, Pepper Nose, she said. Mom called me that because of the dark freckles all over my fish-belly white face. I thought they made me look ugly, but I still liked the name. She only ever used it at home, so it was like our own secret code. I trailed my finger across the calla lily tattoo that curled along her calf. Work go okay? I asked. Mom shrugged. It went. Antonia and I exchanged a worried look. I hated how tired she sounded after work and how her clothes always smelled like onions and cheap coffee. She worked weird hours at a waitress at Theodora's hometown diner. Mornings, evenings, weekends, holidays. There wasn't a time or a day she wouldn't be expected to show up. She never talked about her job, except to say it was like trying to juggle ten balls while tap dancing, and every once in a while someone would throw you a watermelon and a bag of cats. We were down by the river, Antonia blurted out. Whenever she gets worried about Mom, she rattles her mouth about random things no one asked her. I shot her a look before she blabbed everything about the doll's head. 
Oh yeah, she went on, winking at me, but we didn't find anything there. Like Mom wouldn't see right through her. Sure enough, Mom lifted a corner of the washcloth and squinted at Antonia. What did you find, and where did you put it? Antonia once brought home a pail full of tadpoles. She'd put them under the bed and promptly forgot about them until a week had passed and their death stink got Mom's attention. Just some skipping stones, I said quickly, before Antonia could mess things up even more. She wanted to bring some home, but I made her leave them there. That seemed to satisfy Mom. She lowered the washcloth and handed her foot back to me. Looking forward to the first day of school tomorrow, she asked me. Looking forward? Icy fingers dug into my gut. Sure, I lied. Keep an eye on your sister as much as you can. Oh, and I called the school today and asked if Antonia could have lunch with you on her first day. I squeezed my mom's foot. She yelped. Ow, watch it there, she said. Lunch? The icy fingers curled into a fist. With me and all the other seventh graders? Can I sit with you and your friends? Antonia squealed. No, I shouted, a lot louder than I meant to. Mom lifted the washcloth and stared at me. Antonia pouted. I looked down like I'd suddenly found something interesting under my fingernails. I mean, why doesn't she go with the other sixth graders? Lucille Penelope Bloom, Mom said. I winced. Once she trotted out my full name, I knew I was sunk. It's just for one day. You know how flustered Antonia gets with new situations. I don't think it is too much to ask her to let her sit with you for a half hour out of the first day of school. It's 42 minutes, I mumbled. Fine, 42 minutes then. And she'll be with me on the bus. Mom swung her legs out and took hold of my chin. Not painfully, but firmly. Are we going to have a problem here? Whenever Mom did this, I knew she meant business. Not that she'd ever hurt me, like you saw with some parents. Besides, I never pushed too hard. I just couldn't do it. I shook my head. Mom smiled and pulled me into a hug. Antonia squeezed her on the other side. I'm not trying to make things hard for you, Peppernose, she said. I just want to make sure both my girls get through middle school without too much trouble, okay? No trouble on the double, Antonia said and giggled. Double trouble is right, Mom said. Why don't you two go to your room and see what I got for you to wear for your first day back? Antonia gasped. New clothes? Mom sighed. Well, they were on clearance. Antonia didn't care. She bolted off to our room with her howler monkey yell on full volume. Mom nudged me with her shoulder. You too, big sister. Check out what I got for you. I think you'll like it. No stripes? I asked. Mom shook her head and lay back down, covering her eyes with a washcloth. No stripes. You think I just met you yesterday? I started to walk away, then stopped and turned back. The icy fist pounded my gut. Just tell her, I thought. If she knows, maybe she'll let you stay home. Just for one day. Maybe a week. Or a year. Mom? Yeah, Pepper knows? I opened my mouth to say one thing, then shut it tight and opened it again. Thanks for the clothes. Mom waved a limp hand. Anything for my firecrackers? Now get. I wasn't two steps into the bedroom when Antonia snatched away my backpack and nearly tore off my arms. Watch it, I complained, but she was already focused on pulling out the doll's head. Our closet door was open, and it was clear Antonia had been busy setting up a place of honor on top of a cardboard box she'd shoved inside. Perfect, she said, and kissed the doll's nose as she set it on the box.
Then, from a corner of our room, she dragged a little wooden chair Mom had picked up from a yard sale years ago and set it facing the doll's head. I don't think that's a good idea, I said. Mom's going to find that thing and throw it in the trash. Hide it in the dresser. Antonia shook her head. Can't. Why not? Antonia rolled her eyes. How can I have conversations with her through the dresser? That's so rude. And she squeezed her behind in the tiny chair, built for a much tinier behind than she'd had for some time, and shut the closet door. And that, apparently, was the end of that. Later that night, when the lights were out and the covers were pulled over my head, I heard Antonia shuffle out from her bed. She tapped lightly on the closet door and slid it open. And then she whispered a song that sounded kind of familiar. Hush a bye and good night till the bright morning light takes the sleep from your eyes. Hush a bye, baby bright. She sighed, shut the door, and dove back under her covers. It didn't take long for her teeth to start grinding together. She did it every night, and it sounded like she was chewing on a brick. One of these nights she was going to grind her teeth down to the gums. Made my own teeth hurt listening to it, but I knew snoring would follow soon enough. It was still annoying, but at least I could sleep through it. But that night, while I waited for a rumbling snore, I heard something else. Good night, Lucy. Sleep tight. I pulled the covers back from my head and looked at Antonia. She'd already stopped grinding and was revving up her snoring. I glanced at the closet door. It was shut tight. I shivered and pulled the covers back over my head. It didn't make sense. Antonia was never one to talk in her sleep. But that wasn't the strangest part. I figured it was just my imagination. But I could have sworn I heard those words coming from inside the closet. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can find the Dream Gardens podcast website at jleemott.com and my author website at jodyleemott.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at dreamgardensjlm. The Dream Gardens podcast is available through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. Keep reading.